I decided, you know what? I want to start a wine company. I mean, and I, in fact, I want to start a wine company. I want to call it Small Vineyards, and I want to put a sticker on the front of every bottle that tells people that it's hand-harvested, family-owned, earth-friendly, and that there's a great story to everything that we curate and select. Welcome to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Friedman, a corporate attorney and leader of the Stoll Reeves Agribusiness, Food, Beverage, and Timber Industry Group. This season, we're interviewing respected industry leaders and discussing how they and their companies are embracing innovation and capitalizing on new opportunities to move their industries forward in an ever-changing world. Subscribe to the podcast at stoll.com. That's S-T-O-E-L.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to this episode of the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Friedman. My guest today is Joshua Hansen, partner and president of Small Vineyards, also known as August Imports, which is a sales and marketing company for hand-harvested, small production wines from around the world, and some larger brands as well. They're perhaps best known for importing the wines of Andrea Bocelli. Welcome, Joshua. Thank you, Todd. Well, Joshua, you're president of uh, Small Vineyards, and why don't we start by uh, having you tell us a little bit about the story? Yeah, sure. So Small Vineyards, uh, the whole premise is just what you it sounds like. We started basically by the whole idea of, of having a place be the most important part of the story. So the, the, the size of the vineyard indicates the quality, indicates the intimacy, and so family-owned estates hand-harvested, earth-friendly vineyards. The whole idea is that real wines, we found that the best wines come from real places with real people who make them. They're not, usually not concepts. They're usually built from the ground up. And most of these are imports. Uh, our specialty is Italy. That's where we started. And we, we're now in 13 different countries, but uh, Italy is still uh, my personal passions where I started. I started going to Italy every year, actually, my senior year in high school. And when every year after that, fell in love with it. And I went there on vacation uh, in 2000 with uh, my wife and my parents. And we paid a, a, a few bucks to go on one of these tours through Chianti. And, and, and here we are in this, in this little van. And you know, we have this Italian guy who's you know, chain smoking and totally in love with the villages that we're visiting. And every winery knows him. And he, they'd get out, you know, he'd get out and they'd say, you know, ciao, Carlo Lorenzo. And then they'd look at me and they'd go, ciao, come inside. They'd give me a hug. As, as if they knew me. Right. It was so charming and, and uh, made quite an impression. And as we had these wines, they were so good. And, you know, I knew Italian wines pretty well. I had a, you know, decent seller at home and I considered myself somewhat of a collector. These weren't the wines that I was having at home. The ones I had at home were very good, but there was something really special about these wines. And so I asked Lorenzo, I said, why are these wines so good? And he said, because I can't find them at home. And he said, well, the answer to both questions is the same. He said, the one reason they're so good and the reason you can't find them is because they're from small people. So the light bulb goes off and he ends up making a phone call that was absolutely fabulous. He, he, uh, he says, mama, he says, I have some new friends and I want you to make dinner for everybody. And so, you know, you flash forward about it. So was that beyond the normal? Oh, yeah, very much so. Okay. Yeah, there's a hugging in every years. No, that's, that's, yeah, that's part of the tour, but, but this, <laughs> this was uh, above and beyond. And okay. so flash forward a couple hours later and we're sitting at their table in the middle of their vineyard and literally every single thing on the table 
was made on their farm. You know, the olive oil, the flash dried sage leaves, the wine, of course, the meat, everything. It was so fabulous. And I was talking to his father, Franco Battesti. And Franco, and he, and he makes this wine, by the way, uh, the Poderi Chiona and Chianti Classico. I should point out we're drinking Italian wine at, as we speak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we can, we can talk more about that in a little bit. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit more authentico. But of course, Joshua brought not one, but two bottles. Yeah, well, sure. Just to say. <laughs> so I'm, we're having this, this amazing meal, and his, his father said something that I, I, it really struck me. I hadn't ever forgotten. He said, you know, you can be a winemaker for 50 years and only have 50 chances to make the perfect wine. I was like, hmm. wow. I mean, I was in technology at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my whole life. And I, there was something about that, like the patience of the business cycles and, and how fascinated he was with thinking about what his Sangiovese would taste like in five years and 10 years. And, and even the decision trees that go into, okay, so I have a hillside in Chianti Classico, southwest facing 600 meters. I've got calcareous soil with marl and what grapes should I plant in order to maximize the use of soil and the sun exposure and the mesoclimate and all of that stuff. And, and, and how, how densely should I plant them and what, what type of, of, of fine training should I use? And I was just hooked. I was just amazed at kind of the dance between, you know, human beings and nature and how uh, one makes the other better. Had you um, thought, you mentioned you had a wine cellar and appreciated wine, but had you thought about viticulture much before that? Very little, no. And, and it got me a lot closer to understanding the mentality of agronomists and people of the land. I've, I've got farmers in my family, but this was a different thing. And so um, I was really attracted to the art and to the agriculture. It was just a fabulous combination. It'd be hard not to be in that setting, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the bug that bit me, it, it, it still bites me to today. I mean, I, I was, uh, I came back from that trip. I had actually had a contract on my desk to sign up, to go back, to be, uh, the pro tempore CEO of, of a tech company. And I decided, you know what, I want to start a wine company. I mean, and I, in fact, I want to start a wine company. I want to call it small vineyards. And I want to put a sticker on the front of every bottle that tells people that it's hand harvested family owned earth friendly. And that there's a great story to everything that we curate and select. That was the passion behind it. And how many years ago was that? 22. And so I, when I called up Lorenzo and I said, listen, I love your wines. I said, are you interested in exporting your wines to the U.S.? And, and do you happen to know anybody else that might want it? Because I had so many great wives with you. And he said, you know, I said, tell you what, he goes, I'll tell them that I will if they will. And I said, Great. And he said, he said, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And I'll, if I can get some people on board, I'll send you some samples. And about a month later, I had literally a crate, like the Raiders of the Lost Ark, a wooden crate on my front door. I'm not kidding. Uh, and it was absolutely full of wines that we still import most of them to this day. And it started just a love affair with uh, people who make wine and they tend to be really fascinating people. And here you are 22 years later, sitting in a conference room and downtown Seattle and, uh, you have two wines that you brought with you. And, and you said one was made by, um, Lorenzo Spanel. Correct. Yep. Right. And the other one is, uh, this, the story. This, well, this is, uh, in a state called Montetondo, which is in the Suave region. Uh, so this is made from the classic great Garganaga. 
And uh, this estate is just amazing. So this winemaker on the back, you know, we like to put the photo of the winemaker in the little story. There was a, a picture of the winemaker on the back. Yes. Yep. And and some winemakers don't mind that and some do, but they usually play ball and they, they, they think it's fun. And in this particular case, uh, this winemaker here named Gino Monibosco, he bought a hill that was so full of rock and granite and limestone uh, that it was unplantable. So he bought this solid rock hill, drilled holes through all of the rock, planted vines in it. The root systems then ended up taking root. And it was the most heroic bit of maybe viticulture I've ever seen, uh, how hard it was. And he almost died. His tractor flipped over. I mean, it was a really, really quite a story. But it ended up turning into one of the top white wines produced in Italy. This is their basic everyday Suave, but the, the one I'm talking about is a, is a higher end uh, a crew. But every wine has a great story. These people are just, uh, uh, they, they live pretty storied lives. And even if they're not uh, fond of talking about themselves much, you know, if you spend a, a nice meal with them and you kind of find out who they are, they, these stories tend to emerge rather rather organically. And it's uh, and it makes for a good business because you people love to know not just what the wine is, but who makes it. So 22 years later, where you are, and uh, you've, you have a, a business now, it's not just a dream. And so what are some of the challenges and of, of running this business comprised of corralling these, you know, dreamers and, and people who, you know, aren't necessarily looking for the kind of business that you're offering to them? I think the challenges are pretty archetypal for any small producer, wherever they are in the world, if they're in, you know, Willamette Valley or if they're in Tuscany or, you know, Southwest France, it's, it's a lot of the challenges are the same. And that is finding a route to market for a brand that is fabulous product, but it doesn't have a, a known brand. And so that requires a, a lot of pick and ax work on the part of the winery, if it's a domestic winery or on the part of the importer, if they're importing it is to do a lot of that hand selling throughout the supply chain. And in the marketplace where you've seen so much consolidation from, you know, within distributors and retail chains or beca have become, you know, the predominant uh, major force for volume in the U.S. for sure. Drastically changed since when I, when I started Small Vineyards, uh, there were uh, about 8,000 distributors, wine distributors in the U.S. And, and, and as of the uh, end of COVID, there was less than 1,000. So it really compressed. Um, Part of that was natural attrition and a lot of that was consolidation. So what we found is uh, we had to remain relevant with our distributors by doing a lot of the sales work ourselves, being really not just good representatives of, of our product, but actually passionate ambassadors for the family. So the people that we've hired who work for us, our team, they really are passionate about it. If they're not, the wine won't be successful. So one of our big selling points, I think, to uh, both our clients as distributors and, and our, our suppliers is uh, if we won't carry your wine unless we love it. And if we love it, we got a good chance of being successful at selling it. So, uh, but getting attention in the marketplace without having, you know, a, a, a bottomless, you know, pit of capital to work with, uh, which is the case with most small, smaller producers, um, absolutely the biggest challenge. So tell me a bit more about that. So as the distributor tier is consolidating, it puts, seems to me, it would put smaller players at a disadvantage, right? Both in terms of 
getting attention and also in getting pricing. Is that what's going on? And, and how do you, how do we deal with that then as a small importer? You know, back in my technology days, we used to basically, we used to say that, you know, if, if you don't have an incredible product, then don't even bother showing up. I mean, you, you have to have that to start. If you don't have a great wine in the bottle, it doesn't matter. The market will already throw you out um, as a general statement. But to move past that, I think it, it requires a lot of, you have to curate an experience around your wines. You have to have wine tastings. You have to have great educational materials. We have uh, 90 second videos on every single wine uh, that not only tells you the, the, the feature benefit cl- kind of classic sales technique, but it also gives you that kind of romantic story so that if I'm a sales rep in Texas and I've never met Gino Monia Mosco from Montetondo, but I can um, just get on my smartphone, watch the video before I go present. It's like, I, I actually feel like I just had a little bit of, you know, fresh air education here and I can walk in and, and present with some, with some confidence and authority. So having the right tools is, is key. And I think showing the distributor uh, that you aren't just, I had one distributor say it to me years ago. He said, you know, we, we get tired of the be rate and be gone model. He said, we're, we're a winemaker or a supplier will show up and they'll berate us for not selling enough. And then they'd be gone. You, you need to come a solution. And th- what those solutions look like are financial incentives, marketing ideas, social media, digital um, tastings, uh, wine dinners, all the various things that there's not one silver bullet ever. It's, it's a mosaic of, of, of solutions that end up over time creating a flywheel effect on your brand that ends up taking a momentum of its own. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the things that are going on in the, in the consumer space with regard to alcoholic beverages, wine, and, and, and others. From my perspective, there's been a lot of interest in alternative packaging mm-hmm. as well as in alternative uh, beverages, right? You see beer, wine, spirits, and now you see ready-to-drink cocktails. You see yes. seltzers, hard seltzers. You see cider and Certainly in Portland, you see mead. I assume here in Seattle, I seem like I'm not sure about in Chicago, but yeah. um, but anyway, uh, there's a lot going on in this space. It, it creates probably some noise and some opportunities. It does, and we've spent a lot of time thinking about that and and acting on that. At, at my company, uh, we have, you know, we we migrated out of only small production wines into much larger production wines, and now we've migrated out of wines into beyond wine type products. So, wine spritzers different uh, types of, uh, of, of packaging alternatives. Because one thing that we saw, we've seen, you know, a couple of converging dynamics. One is that consumers really do want to drink healthier. They want to have lower alcohol wines, which is becoming a bigger and bigger challenge with climate change that's going on and making alcohol higher, uh, degrees of alcohol higher than they otherwise would be. But there's also, uh, it, during COVID, we had this really big shift in what consumers, what they wanted their packaging to be. They wanted their wine to be portable. Uh, they wanted to be able to have it on their terms, to be able to take it anywhere they wanted. Uh, but they also wanted, they, you know, before if you'd buy a wine in a, in a three liter bag and box or you'd buy it in a Tetra pack or you'd buy it in a can, the quality would be relatively what you'd expect. But having said all that, the consumer began to really uh, expect and demand really good quality regardless of the package and they want a lot of different options so different half bottles we we have a, a found really great success in aluminum wine bottles as opposed to cans 
cans look like a beer. It's 12 ounce beer can essentially. And that doesn't really speak wine to a lot of people, at least subliminally. So we found that if we have put it in a, uh, in a beautiful aluminum bottle, we had to work for a long time to get the liner inside the aluminum proper so that it would, uh, uh, it wouldn't affect the flavor of the wine. Screw caps matter a lot, uh, on those types of things because people like to reclose them, that kind of thing. So that's taken a lot of R and D time, but we found that that time is paying off because brands that we have that have been around a while, which are a little bit stagnant, we've now introduced these alternative packages and all of a sudden, uh, it isn't just popular in on-premise and restaurants. It's also now becoming picking up a lot of steam in off-premise and stores. Uh, we're getting a lot of outdoor venue and stadium type business and things that we had in typically had an opportunity to do because uh, we were only selling 750 glass bottles. Does that make your business more complicated? Do you have uh, more SKUs maybe, or just more to manage in terms of what you need to do to de either develop a new product or to manage an existing product? Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. Makes it more complex. Uh, inventory carrying costs are higher, development costs are higher, but that is the market that we're in. So we can either invest and take on those additional costs in order to have additional diversification and growth opportunities or not. Somebody's got to do it. So we need to adapt or die. That's really kind of how we see it. There's enough wine companies in the world. There's 250,000 SKUs or so in the U.S. that are buying for distribution in glass bottles. Uh, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, so I would say that anything you can do to stand out that preserves the integrity of the wine and speaks has a, as a personality is really helpful with consumers. So one of the things uh, along those lines that I wanted to ask you is there, it, there's always this tension in every industry, and I know you were in tech and now you're in wine, and I think you could say about both, that innovation can be driven by or sort of pulled along by the consumer or can be driven by the, the producer, probably not by the distributor. And so what you're talking about here is as the producer or standing in place of the producer, um, talking about, well, we think, you know, if we put this out into the market, it'll activate something. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, the consumers are asking for X, Y, and Z. Is that a fair characterization of the way that you see innovation? Yeah, it depends on the space. I mean, for example, um, you know, we're, we have, a, we're working on a, a completely paper uh, wine bottle, for example. It's made of paper. It's very light totally recyclable. Uh, that's taken a long time to get. What's the lining? It's a wax, basically a, a wax paper. Uh, and I'm not actually exactly sure what the lining is on it, but I, I know that it's, it's, it's working to protect the mine. But what I can say is that the, you know, whether you're talking about that or even using a, a traditional Tetra pack or, or some kind of uh, unique uh, aluminum bottle, like we talked about earlier. We found that some of them, if you're talking about a, a, a category that already exists, like bag and box, you might say that's not reinventing the wheel. Everybody knows what that is. Put that out. If you're using something like a paper bottle, which no one's really ever seen before, then you are assuming that, okay, if people buy in glass, they're going to be interested in a more ecologically friendly package. It's also very unique looking. It looks pretty cool. And it definitely sends a message to the world that uh, wine comes from the earth. It should actually be in something from the earth. Uh, and not necessarily so manipulated as something like a shiny glass bottle. So sometimes there's guessing, but we also do a lot of consumer surveys in our company. So we, we put them up online. We ask thousands of people, hey, what do you think about this? And 
we get their opinion. So that way uh, we reduce our risk quite a bit. Um, and we also have learned to walk before we run. Trials, small t- trials uh, are really valuable. And uh, we always start with the smallest possible quantity. We can make up some unique package, uh, even if it costs you way more per unit, just, you know, that's fine. We are not trying to be profitable. We're trying to prove the concept. What does a conversation look like when you go to a distributor and you're bringing in something new that they don't have experience with? Um, e- even if, obviously, you vetted it to the point where you think it's worth taking to market, but um, how does that conversation go? I assume they're generally fairly conservative in terms of what they want to put on the shelf and what they, you know, what it, their ambitions are somewhat limited, let's say, in terms of uh, how far they want to stick their neck out. Sure. Well, you know, you're, you're a lawyer, so part of your role in life is to anticipate questions that the other side's going to ask. So that's really what it is, is that you're anticipating what are the questions that the supply chain is going to ask? What are the district, what reasonable justification do you need to make to the distributor? What tools are you going to break? What data bring, what data can you provide? What consumer trends can you show? And you show up with a very pithy presentation that's just a few slides as you don't go too deep, but basically here's the three reasons why we think that these things are really going to work. And here's more detail on it if you want. And, but what they see, what the distributor sees in that is they say, okay, I can see this translating well to the next link in the chain, which is retail. I can see the retailers buying this. I can see the retailer making that, that would make sense to me. Everybody will have their opinions about, you know, what will work and what won't work. Uh, and the more granular or the more, I should say, uh, eclectic the product is, that's obviously going to have a much smaller audience and you'll have a, maybe a harsher uh, uh, reception from some and, and more passionate from others. But uh, justifying the reasoning with data and consumer trends is a crucial part of that. If you don't do that, uh, they're just trying to take your word for it and that doesn't usually work. What's your favorite wine story? I have a friend who's a winemaker in, uh, in Friuli Venezia Giulia, which is in the northeast corner of Italy. Uh, his name is Paolo Medway, and he owns a, an amazing restaurant there. And uh, his family home is, you know, it's, it's pretty palatial. It's beautiful. It's probably, I don't know, I'd say 15 to 20 bedrooms and, you know, a lot of bathrooms and such. And, and that's been their family a very long time. And uh, Paolo is a chef, and he, you know, always has a greasy apron on and he's an amazing winemaker. And he told me a story about in World War II, uh, the Nazis took over his family's home and it became, ended up becoming an officer's home. And when that happened, Paolo's father uh, ended up taking their best wine and shoving it into a corner of the cellar and he hastily built a brick wall to cover it all up. And uh, he said, and then one night uh, a German soldier was out smoking and walking around the cellar and he bumped the wall uh, with it with the butt of his gun and had knocked one of the freshly laid bricks right out and he was like looking through the hole and he was trying to see what was in there and then and then he ends up you know just brushing it off and Paolo said to me he said he chose to insult Italian uh, engineering instead of considering Italian can <laughs> that's great what would you like our audience know about small vineyards? Well, I think, you know, our company is a reflection of what we love to do. The people who work here, the estates that we represent, the distributors that we partner with, the, re- the, the restaurants and the stores that we sell to, it really is quite a remarkable uh, fraternal group. 
And over time, you know, 20 years goes by so fast because uh, it's a slow cycle industry in a lot of ways. You only have one vintage a year, of course, and you end up having a, a series of relationships that you really rely on. So, for example, we entered into the pandemic and all of a sudden overnight, all the restaurants were closed and half of our business was gone. And all of a sudden we found ourselves relying on relationships that were two decades old. And that's when you really find out, you know, who your real partners are. Right. And, uh, and so I think one of the things that, that I really love about our company and our industry is the fact that, uh, if you treat people well and you do things well and you tell the truth and you work hard and you, uh, and you show up every day with, with products that really have a lot of personality and integrity, uh, things will work out pretty well. And I think what we have done in the process is managed to keep up with the times in terms of uh, looking at what consumers are actually wanting. I don't think we're stuck. Uh, and that's, um, that's not easy for wine companies to do because wine companies are based in tradition and classicity by almost by definition. Uh, but we have, uh, I think, really put a great deal of energy and passion into innovation with our supplier network uh, and tapped into those wineries that are really entrepreneurial in nature. And so I guess what I would say is an encouragement to people who feel like maybe they're stuck is that they can have an opportunity to uh, rethink their business in terms of how do I take the same things that made my, my, my wine company great or my company, whatever business I'm in that make it great. And how do I then repurpose those things really for what the market's demanding? Um, and there is risk that will need to be taken. I tell you what, the risk is hopefully it's worth it, but it is absolutely fun. It's, it's, uh, it's the heart of business for me is creative destruction of your own business. You know, as a business leader, we have crises all the time, right? It's what we do. Right. Some of them are external and some of them are internal and the ones that are internal, we intentionally make our own team uncomfortable at times because we have to grow to move into a different direction. Right. And, uh, for, for the business owners out there, I would say be willing to do that. Very good. The safe advice. Well, thank you, Joshua. This has been uh, really enjoyable and uh, enlightening. And I'll say on behalf of all of our audience, we really appreciate the time that, um, that you've taken to be on the Deeply Rooted podcast and um, look forward to more conversations in the future. Well, thanks, Todd. Appreciate your uh, great partnership in the law side for uh, going on until well over a decade now. So you've been a right. an amazing, amazing partner for us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. To follow along and get additional insights from each episode, visit stoll.com. Please also take a moment to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is not legal advice and the podcast does not create a client-attorney relationship.